Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Revelation 7, 2 and 3. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with David Apple to continue our discussion on the book of Revelation. David, how are you? Doing well, Willie. It's good to be back on. How is the weather in Paducah? Paducah is great. Springtime is here. My garden, such as it is, is all almost all planted. There's a few things that we haven't uh, put the seeds in the ground yet, cantaloupes and melons and such, but uh, everything else is in little seeds starting to sprout up. So that's, that's always good. We're about, I don't know, sunny, 70 degrees, a lot of rain. Seems like we get a day of rain, a day of sun, a day of rain, a day of sun. So all good stuff. Been uh, awfully rainy here uh, recently and some bad weather. Had a tornado warning just the other day. Anyone who doesn't believe in the judgment of God upon people has never been in terrifying weather before. (laughs) And you know, nobody was too spooked, but it's like, how can you look in awe at a weather disaster and not think, ah, truly the hand of the Lord is somewhere uh, in all of this. But he who causes the storm can also uh, stop the storm as well. Don't get me wrong here, but um, it, it is good uh, you know, for the spirit to see just how fragile things can be from time to time. Um, also, folks, there is somebody weed eating just outside my office door right now. So if you do hear a, a loud roaring noise, it is it is merely uh, the sound of technological progress happening and a gas-powered weed yeah. eater out the window. Uh, and you might not even be able to hear it. Zellwin will edit out uh, any any unbecoming noise. Was that picking up on your microphone at all, David? Yeah, I heard it. I heard okay, it okay, good, good deal. At it's either sem- it's either the lawn guy or Leatherface. So at the at the seminary, we were trained for this. Uh, I remember distinctly. Remember, we were in major prophets class, and um, the professor was lecturing on. I don't know what he was lecturing about. Maybe Isaiah. The, the lawn crew was outside the window, just, I don't know what they were doing, but it was like half an hour of just constant machine noise. The professor finally goes, and you'll know who this is, Willie. He goes, well, men, we have to believe that in all things, God works together for our good. <laughs> so same, same thing here. That's right. Same principle. Same principle. Um, you will notice that Zelwin is not with us today. Um, he is traveling across the prairie. The herd is on the move. I think he's actually been perhaps in the eastern end of the Dakota Territory this week, but we're not going to dox him or anything. But, uh, you know, the nearer he gets from his western plains over to the east, the closer he gets to cities and to brew pubs, and the closer he is to uh, uh, roaring and snorting uh, through through cities, which is not his natural habitat. He needs a lot of lush grass and, uh, you know, a lot of uh, bedding for him to, uh, to, re- to nestle down into. So, yeah. I so think please, he was wasn't he at a pastoral conference. I believe like, he was at a yeah. at a conference. And if I'd you know like, anything about the Reverend Heidi, it's that he loves him a conference. He does. He loves the um, the the mutual consolation, the of mutual the consolation of the brethren. He loves uh, reports from various agencies. Yes, that's just really his jam. So, so good luck right. to you, Zelman. Right. Well, speaking of signs of judgment, we are here <laughs> in. Uh, Revelation. Uh, we're going to try to get into chapter seven. We definitely will. Uh, but we're 
in the previous episode, you all were talking about the seals being open, and you would have ended with the sixth seal. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I think at the beginning here, Willie, it's probably good just to jog the memory. I Because I've recorded with Zelwyn and with you separately, but not together, I think Adam's been in and out on Revelation. So we we come and we go. But what you've got here, we're actually kind of coming out of the judgments. The, the six seals, the first six seals, are all signs of judgment. And um, the sixth one is the it ends this way. The kings of the earth and uh, the people of the earth have this, this statement. They say, to the hills and the mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And that's significant because what happens then is you, you expect a seventh, the seventh seal to be opened. And this goes all the way back to the vision that John has into heaven, where the Lamb of God is the one who is the one who is worthy to actually open the, the um, seals of a scroll. And so he's been opening those seals, and each seal releases some worse, I don't know, conflict or, or problem, judgment on earth. And so the the sixth at the end of the sixth seal, you have this. I guess a rhetoric, it seems like a rhetorical question. Who can stand? The answer implied is no one. But then you get this interruption of the six seals. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today here before you get the seventh seal. All right. Well, that brings us up to chapter seven then. And so now we're going to get into a lot of fun stuff. We got some numerology right out of the gate, right? Yeah, we got some numerology. We've got some Jehovah's Witness stuff. Yeah, we got good stuff to talk about. All right. Well, let's begin. So the like I said, the sixth seal has been opened, and the question is, who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? And then you have what most of our listeners, I, I was making this point with Zelwyn last time, most people know chapter seven quite well, but sure. they don't know its context. Yeah, because, it's very popular. You know, it's it's one of the All Saints Day readings, right? right? And right. of course, it's read at a lot of funerals, too. Yeah, so we're going to know the details of this, but what but what's often overlooked is that where it comes in mm-hmm. the in the book of Revelation, and there's this there's a repetition in the book of Revelation that I want to bring out here, and we we don't necessarily have to go down this road too far, Willie, because we'll come to it again. But the the seven seals are repeated or recapitulated or recycled. I don't know what word you like the best with the seven trumpets. And you even have a a similarity in that you go through six seals and six trumpets, and then there's kind of this interruption. And the seals and the trumpets are are both, as you read them and as you think about them, they are all all signs of wrath. But then the Mm -hmm. interruption comes, and it's in the interruption that you get the, um, you know, the revelation of God's grace in the midst of all of this, you know, everything's falling apart, basically. Sure. So sure. what we what we talk about here in chapter seven is kind of further elaborated, and this, you know, we're going to come back to this eventually, but it's further elaborated in chapter ten and eleven, where you have how is God at work in the midst of all this uh, terrible stuff? How is He saving His people from the wrath? Certainly. Well, let's get into that then. Uh, let's let's so. We're going to begin chapter 7 
we see four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Any comment about the four-cornered nature of the earth? Well, just to to note that the number four, uh, you were mentioning this before, you get some number symbolism here. The the fourfold, the four cardinal points on a compass, four is usually some depiction of the fullness of earth. And you can even hear that in, um, you know, the songs of Revelation, where you have blessing and glory and honor and might be to God and the Lamb. You get that's the song of the earth. It has four distinct words that are used there. So anytime you see four, you've got a fullness of the earth thing sure. going on. Yeah. I mean, you get this, uh, you know, this kind of the wind metaphor too in the Psalms and in Jeremiah and and elsewhere. So, so yeah, it's just it's an encompassing fullness. Um, we do want to give a bit of a caution about numerology because you can get absolutely crazy with this. You don't want to have a Kabbalistic interpretation of the scriptures or something like that, kind of a hermetic understanding. So when we use numerology, we use it where appropriate and, uh, you know, without um, expanding much more on what is a clear biblical use of it. Because you can get into some very serious errors when you start interpreting the Bible in some esoteric ways. Yeah, the the meaning of the numbers comes out of the has to come from the the narrative or the the words of scripture itself right so sometimes you get this idea like Jesus had to be in the wilderness for 40 years or 40 days because uh the number 40 has this uh symbolism but really it's it's the other way around right because he was there for 40 days the number 40 and because it has those previous precedents right um, biblically that's the significance of 40 not because there's some secret meaning within the number itself Mm -hmm. all right let's continue so the angel there's going to be this unleashing of the winds but first there has to be the protection that gets put on god's people right so before the fullness of god's wrath comes he's going to mark his people the way that he marks them is by sending out this angel to put a seal on the foreheads of God's people. And so you you have the numbering of that of of God's people here listed as 144,000. And then you get this it almost sounds like like a census or like some of the parts of the Old Testament like in the book of Numbers where you have the um, genealogies listed and they they list out the number of people in each tribe, right? You get 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, 12,000 from Gad, and that 12,000 numbers repeated for each of the tribes of Israel, except for the tribe of Dan, is not mentioned. Correct. So this this gets into then the whole, I, I said this before jokingly, the Jehovah's Witness, and I don't know, I'm not up to speed on my Jehovah's Witness theology here. The belief was at one point that only 144,000 people would be saved. Correct. And I believe that is still the the standard. Um, Although, although, you know, it's not as if the other 144 will be uh, condemned. They're they're actually annihilated, right? That's true. So I guess it's not so it's not so bad. Right. You just you just cease to exist. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know how they determine when, you know, what what percentage are we at there? You know, it's like a gas tank, a fuel gauge there. Are we at 135,000 yet? I, d- I don't know. Right. Yeah. How, how did they, they come in? Out? Yeah. How are they determined worthy? You know, 
But what we would say over against that, you the the number twelve. Why is that a, a number that's chosen here? Because you get twelve times twelve thousand to get one hundred and forty-four thousand. It's not because twelve has some hidden meaning, but it's because there were 12, 12 sons of uh, Israel, so 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus then, when he uh, comes, he calls 12 apostles, and so the number 12 is given its significance by those events in history, and uh, it signifies the, the completion or the fullness of the number. No one is left out. No one is... Um, you know, forgotten, no, none of the elect are lost in this marking out. Sure. Well, uh, the Old Testament background for the book of Revelation is also always helpful to um, bring out for people. So when the, when the angel goes out to mark everyone on their forehead, and that's, the, that's what sealing is, to put a mark on someone's forehead. We've come across the seals, of course, before in the book because the See, the scroll is sealed up with, you know, a wax stamp of some sort. But here, the sealing on the forehead is more like, you know, it's, I don't want to say a tattoo, Willie, because that's going to put the wrong idea in people's mind. But that's what, <laughs> I guess that's what we're talking about here, right? Is that there's some kind of a stamp, some sure. kind of a mark of ownership that's being put on these people's heads, right? On right. And yeah, and the press always goes to the mark of the beast. You know, that's what popular culture has latched on to. But this is actually a more significant mark for the believer. Right. That God would mark and seal them. And the this is not the first place, or this is not the first time in the Bible where you have angels marking people on their heads. Correct. Um, yeah. So I think it's in Ezekiel 9, I think it's chapter 9, where something almost exactly the same happens. There's a man... Uh, who goes around and he is uh, marking everyone on their heads or the the faithful on their on their foreheads, and that mark then is what saves them from destruction. Correct. Yeah, but and and that's the thing. I mean, this should be um, just on a practical level. You know, there's there's always a question of uh, when the mark of the beast comes. You know, will, will Christians take it? Will I take the mark of the beast? You know, that that sort of thing, which will be a, dis- a fun discussion once we get up to the to that chapter, but. You know, the Christian should actually think about what it means to be marked and sealed by God um, and what that means as far as uh, end times things go, or or really just the, the entirety of their Christian life, you know, what that actually means for them, what it means to be sealed, what that says about the nature of salvation and where it comes from, too. Yeah, well, I think the using the language of seals connects in with, I, I know at some, I, this might be more of a reformed way of, ta- of Are you going to say about, signs and seals now? Uh, yeah. Talking about the sacraments, but they, the sacraments are seals, right? They are effective signs of God's grace. And so it, it's a, a very natural connection here to see the mark on a person's forehead, especially the way that we practice baptism. It's pretty hard not to see this as a baptismal you know, at least that being the primary way that the the sign or the the seal would be placed on Christians now, right? You're marked on your forehead with the sign of the cross, and more significantly, uh, the name of God is is sealed over you in baptism. Sure, and you know this is also probably connected in some way to the white stone and new name uh, given to those who conquer in the second chapter of the book. Yeah. 
And the, so, yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot to unpack here. So this the seal certainly signifies uh, ownership. The the other thing that's interesting with the seal and sealing people on their foreheads is that sometimes that word can be used in like military for military purposes. So when you are enrolled in the in the militia, you could be sealed and therefore you're you're part of the army then. Everyone who has the seal is in the army. And so it's not just a a way of saying these people belong to the Lord, but it's also a mark by which then these people are the the army. This is the host of God's of God. Sure. Well, all right. Well, let's um, let's talk a little bit about this um, about this multitude. Then, who are they? Well, this this is a good question, and it was one I, I'm curious to hear your answer on too, Willie. There's, I think, there's two basic ways to understand this. You've got the hundred and forty four thousand here, which is not a literal uh, exactly hundred and forty four thousand, but again, the number of completion. One way to take it is you have the the fullness of Israel here. So all of those who are descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, who also then believe in Christ are are spoken of here. And then the Gentiles are what follows in the next couple of verses. And that's really the, the verses that are well known to us because of All Saints Day. The other way to take it, and this is my my understanding, is that um, kind of like you have Jesus described as both lion and lamb, or you have the church described as both the bride of Christ and the city of God, that at the beginning of chapter 7, we're not talking about Jews, and later in chapter 7, we're talking about Gentiles, but that these are just two ways of talking about the, f- the fullness of the church. The church militant and the church triumphant is maybe a distinction that we've heard before. Sure. Yeah, you can go with, with either either one of those. Um, and ultimately, whichever way you take it, the, the point is that the gospel is given to all. You can't come away either way with that. You know, you can't you can't do uh, you can't come away with some kind of Israel, you know, ethnic Israel triumphalism, like what you get in some of dispensationalism. But the point here is going to be that the fullness has come in and the fullness of the elect includes people from every tribe, tongue and nation. And I want to talk a little bit um, kind of about this. You know, what what will the saints in heaven look like? I mean, we know we've got a couple minutes left in the segment, so I would like to, to point this out and get your thoughts on this. So after this, verse 9, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and the Lamb. So he, John's recognizing that they, that they are different people groups. You know, that there are different right. tribes, tongues, and nations. He is somehow able to recognize what they are saying here, even though it appears to be, you know, in, in one loud voice, but they're from every tribe, people, and language. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So it seems like uh, certain individual things about humans would persist even into glory, rather than us being some kind of completely unrecognizable or indistinguishable blob that the peoples and, and nations and tribes, at least in some sense, although united around the gospel and united in a common proclamation of praise 
to God, um, they're still semblances of how God made them, even in even in glory. Yeah, ethnicity no longer it's the ethnicity does not go away, right? It is it does persist, and the the distinction in languages too. I mean, this is this is a common thing, like going back to Babel, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast yeah. before. The problem at Babel is not that you know people wanted to be wanted to diversify the language. Um, that was God's intent all along: be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The problem at Babel is that they tried to um, stop that from happening. Yeah, and the, and so it is. A, it is the um, the unity and the you know we're gonna we're gonna make our own city we're going to make our own tower reaching up into heaven that god then fixes that problem by scattering the people and yeah. when pentecost yeah. comes he doesn't then say now we're all going to come back into one thing again um, but the gospel is preached in every language and every nationality receives the same gospel but that doesn't you know yeah. that doesn't make those things go away yeah and they and they receive it um, in their time you know, according to the to the, the hand of God, it's um, why this point is so controversial. I can't figure it out. Like, but but it, for some reason, it, it seems to set people off. Like, we'll we'll argue about creation, and we should, and contend for biblical creation, and then deny that God creates things the way they are, and try to pretend as if it's a bad thing that God <laughs> makes people into what they are. Yeah, there, I I guess it's it. Would you say it's just like the fascination with the other, right? I mean, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's cool that you sing in English and that you preach in English, but what's really what's really great is when you sing a mighty fortress in Spanish. And <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's that's close to home for you, Willie. I know, right? Right? <laughs> yes, hitting a little close to home, but but I've I've seen it. I've seen it in yeah. action. Yeah, well, it's, in it, it's in the hymnal. You know, right? Right? Yeah. Exactly. So guys, just be content with the way God made things and let, and let verses like this speak with what they are. It clearly says from every tribe, he's able to recognize from every tribe, nation, peoples, and languages standing before the throne. So he's able to see there's something different here. You know, if they all look like that kind of amalgamation of people that you get in, in the novel version of Starship Troopers, you know, where everybody just kind of looks vaguely Brazilian, I don't think he'd be able to tell a difference here. <laughs> So yes, that's that's not heaven, and that's not really even the goal on earth either, is it? Exactly, exactly. Well, hey, we're up to our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast, Available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with David Apple talking about the book of Revelation. So we talked about this great multitude and what they're made up of. Well, now let's talk about what they're doing, how they're dressed, why they are here standing before the throne and before the Lamb. David? Yeah, I mentioned this before. The I, I take it, Willie, and I don't. I didn't ask you, so I'd be curious what you say. The number of 144,000 is kind of immediately changed here to a countless number. And so if we're talking about the same group of, of individuals, or if we're talking about the same collection of people, the church, it is interesting that you get that contrast. And again, I would just compare it to the way Jesus is portrayed as both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb or the church later will be called the bride and the city. So the angel will say to John, let me show you the bride adorned for her husband. And then what comes down is not a woman, but a city. So I think it's the same thing happening here. You have the the host of God, the church on earth, listed out with a number, 144,000. But then it is immediately described or seen as a also a countless number. And what was described in very Jewish terms now is, you know, not ethnic, ethnically defined because it is from every tribe, every nation, every language and people. And they're given white robes, which kind of goes back to uh, the, uh, not kind of, but it does go back to the fifth seal, which is where you, we saw the the martyrs underneath the the altar of God. So what was happening in the fifth seal, if you remember, is the martyrs are calling out for vindication. How long, mm-hmm. O Lord, until you avenge us? And now in chapter seven, you have, it might not be the exact same group of people, but you do see some of the martyrs vindication in that they are now at rest, right? The, the saints are at rest around the throne and they, they have these white robes. Um, so, these are, or excuse me, uh, so the question is asked, so one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. How do you view the great tribulation here? Is that referring to a specific future time, as many dispensationalists would, would argue, or do you think it's a general, a general kind of uh, age of the church sort of epoch yeah. that we're talking about here? That's the way I take it. The second yeah. thing you said there, I don't think it's the. And um, I realize I spoiled the question a little bit yeah. by associating it with this. I think you can biblically make a case for a future increased time of per- persecution, but now is the time of tribulation. Yeah. So yeah. the the tribulation starts as soon as the Lamb starts opening the seals, mm-hmm. right? Because you get the you get the the first four seals, if you remember, are these horsemen who are coming out and kind of ravaging the earth. And to your point, Willie, the seals affect a quarter of the earth. It's often repeated there, and a quarter of this, a quarter of that, a quarter of Mm -hmm. this, a quarter of that. When the trumpets sound, you do have, there is a lot of recycled things. and, And some people have often noted that the book of Revelation seems to be repeating Right, so the the seven seals are repeated by the seven trumpets, are repeated by the seven bowls of God's wrath, but the quarter, the numbers do change. So a quarter are affected by the seals, and then it increases to a third affected mm-hmm. by the trumpets. So I think you're right that 
while we can say that the tribulation that the church has experienced has been, you know, has begun with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, it's not wrong to expect an intensification of that tribulation. Um, So these people have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, so justified by Christ. They are before the throne of God, continuing on reading verse 15 here, serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, thirst no more, the sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Here is the vindication of God, the rescue of his people, and also you see a picture of heaven, you know, you know, with these saints where they are serving God day and night. So you're still active in in heaven. And now some Lutheran out there is going to be very, very offended that I didn't say everything was totally passive here. But they are before the throne of God, <laughs> says the text, and serve him day and night in his temple. And they are sheltered with his presence. So still still sustained by God, but still serving him. Still, still conscious and alive, too, which is very interesting. Right. The rest, when we talk about the church at rest, there's a difference between um, resting and being inactive, right? So um, resting does not always mean sleeping. And right. um, being at rest is not defined here as being in basically a comatose state. Right. And we, and we reject the doctrine of soul sleep anyway. Right. You know, the idea that death is just unconsciousness until the day of resurrection. Um, that does not seem to be the, that just plain isn't the biblical witness here. I mean, I mean you get the, you get some language in Paul that talks about, you know, you know, it, it making it almost sound that way, but here we have clear evidence of consciousness and activity. I mean, to say nothing of like Moses and Elijah, the transfiguration and all of these other events in scripture. Yeah. The, now what exactly the service of God looks like there? I, you know, I don't know. You don't have the. You do get a better description of the activity of the city and people coming in and out of the city of God at the end of the book of Revelation. So when you yes. finally see the new heavens and the new earth joined together there at the end, it does. You know, it, it looks like a city, and the functions of a of a normal city are going on. Um, here, you're not given too much detail about that other than they are protected the saints the souls that are in heaven here that's how i take it um i don't think john is seeing sort of a what a fast forward view to the end i don't think he's skipping to the end i think this really is the passage that we would look to for what we would call the intermediate state you know what happens between death yeah. and resurrection i think you you get that here in revelation 7 Let's um let's talk a little bit more before we move on into chapter eight and talk about uh, the prayers of the saints and things like that. Uh, I want to focus a little bit on tribulation and what the church can expect. Do you think that the American church right now, if we can use a term that broad, or let's even say the Lutheran church, if we can, are we ready for intense tribulation? You know, maybe this is too judgmental or something of me to say, but I don't think that um, we are ready for even little tribulation. And I think that's clear because of what's happened with the coronavirus and sure. how and how it has, what what is a relatively minor thing. Now we're going to get letters, aren't we? <laughs> right, right. That, but it has been magnified into this terrible 
burden and this awful thing that, you know, what are we going to do? This is novel. This is never before heard of on the one hand, or you get the other side of it, which is quick, break out what Luther says about the plagues and just do what he said about the black plague. Well, you know, this is not the black plague. And so it's, you don't need to go back to um, what they were doing then for the coronavirus, <laughs> uh, especially a year, almost a year and a half now after it, it's been on the loose. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a startling thing to, to look at. I mean, because we're all softer than we need to be or than we should be. And when we think about uh, tribulation, I believe part of us embracing hedonistic lifestyles and sodomy and every, you know, everything else that the sure. Bible prohibits is two things. One, we want acceptance of the world from the world. And so that's why our critical theory episode was so controversial, right? So because people wanted to wanted to embrace that for the in the case of the favor of the world. I think also the other side of that coin is they are afraid of the world. They fear the world more than God, and so they want to embrace it out of safety or out of relevancy. And we're seeing this with a lot of big denominations now, but you're seeing it more disturbingly at the congregational level in places. And when I say denominations, I mean I'm considering like the Southern Baptists taking up the like banning of Confederate flags or whatever, you know, a convention ago, like, yeah, that, that, that heartbeat issue, you know, things like that. It's quickly becoming kind of the Russell Moore Synod and Lutherans need to be on guard for this too, because we will quickly embrace that for either, for either wanting the acceptance of the world for the sake of safety. And that's a form of tribulation. It's a form of persecution. The church suffers and we should be on guard against the little persecutions, because if we're not on guard there, then the big ones will surely swallow us up. Don't you think, Willie, part of the value here of reading about the the seals and the trumpets being let loose is that the world is really unstable. That's yeah. like part of what revelation. So if you're looking for um, the approval and the respect of such an instable thing and, and a thing, uh, something that's doomed, and that yeah. is continually being shaken, you're always going to be shaken yourself. Yeah, you have to remember that this world and the things of it are transient. And the things that God builds will, or, or rebuilds in the case of us, and in the case of the world, will be forever. And so what you see will be consumed and, and reborn and remade. And that's what you need to hope in. You need to read, if you're going to read Revelation, don't read it just for the scary parts and think, oh, woe is me. You know, all of this persecution is coming or all of these horrible things are going to befall the church. Look at things like chapters seven and eight. And, uh, you know, the, the later chapters too, with these comforting visions of God's vindication of his people and God's rescue of his people. These are meant to strengthen your faith. And ultimately, the picture of Revelation is the victory of Jesus Christ, not a horror movie about the Antichrist. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's something that's worth stressing again and again, is that the reason that all this stuff is happening is because the Lamb has ascended to the throne, right? The, until the scrolls starts being opened, none of this stuff was released in the world. But since that has happened, the kingdom of Jesus being extended on earth and coming from heaven down to earth, yeah, the, the kingdoms of earth don't appreciate his, his reign and his rule, and they're not going to receive him kindly. And the, the role of the church in the midst of that is not to capitulate 
to the demands of the world, but to actually offer by some resistance a witness that actually converts the world to right. Christ. And, you know, and, and that's from peasants all the way up to kings. I don't know why people are so like, well, you think if you have a Christian ruler, it's better for the church? Yeah, I actually unironically do. <laughs> I think it's good to preach the gospel to leaders because they need the gospel too. Yeah. And and while the, the church really does grow during persecution, and certainly, if not numerically, it, it grows stronger spiritually, for lack of a better word there, during times of persecution, it's not a bad thing for the church to be able to exercise freely. And And the problem is when we have been free to do it, we have uh, let our guard down and become weakened because of that. And so God will often send tribulation as a chastisement to, to make the church stronger through that. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't then want to live in a system where Christianity is honored. That's not a bad thing. When people will, it, it's this doublespeak that we hear all the time. Well, you can't expect leaders to be uh, Lutheran or even Christian. Oh, by the way, here's the feast day of Frederick the Wise we need to celebrate. Right. <laughs> yeah, so pick one. Which is it? Yeah, it's a it's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, we talk a lot about now and and I'm sure that our pastors who are listening get questions like this in Bible class and just from their members and people have this sense that America was something and now it's changing, right? And so we talk about like becoming post-Christian or or whatever the the terms are there were more Christian nations than America. And I'm not saying that because I'm not a patriot or not a, you know, I'm not anti-American by any means, but there have been other nations that were lights to the world before, you know, 1776, right? And you can see the value of that. You can see the, the goodness of that. And I think that it is part of the church's goal is not to simply set up heaven on earth right now. Um, but we do want to Christianize as much as we can. Yeah. That's a noble goal. That's colonialism. Yes. Yes, it is. Right. And it will, <laughs> it will bear good fruit too, right? Because right. then when the school and the home and the government and the church are harmonious, lo and behold, good things happen. Yeah. It's actually a blessing to have good government. You know, you, your churches pray for that every week. And it's not just because it's part of the liturgy. I hope it's because they mean it. It's not because we just want low taxes, Willie. That's right. That's that's the sum and <laughs> We want to keep our money. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, ultimately, it's just about libertarianism. That's, yeah. that's that's what the prayers of the church are, folks. You heard it here first. No, it's, um, you know, our prayers are, are such because we believe in the power of God, in the power of God to change even nations. And and of course that's a that's a mighty thing to do, and that's why we have to ask God because only God yeah. can do that. Well, I I know that you have some thoughts on this, and I mentioned it with Zelwyn last time. the The vindication of the saints, and like take the martyrs for example. Uh -huh. um, when when were the martyrs vindicated? Right. So they ask God, "How long, O Lord, until you avenge us on earth?" And I think that you can make a very strong case that with Constantine that there was a temporal vindication of the saints or yeah. of the martyrs, that it wasn't just, it's not just a purely wait until the last day thing, but that God does show uh, in his saints and in the life of the church, even now, he does show his power. And part of that is, you know, the conversion of kings and rulers. Yes, yes. And I, I think that's a very important thing. You know, as the church goes out into the world and conquers, 
you know, whether you like that term or not, as the gospel is is changing hearts and and bringing men to to Christ, that God is still active in history. And yeah, part of the vindication of that is the victory over the church. So you do get tastes of that throughout history. Of course, both of us would agree the ultimate vindication is yet to come. Right. But you do get tastes of that. It's we need to stop thinking about like God stopping after revelation is written, right? Or whatever you believe the last book of the Bible to be written, boom, it's done. And then God's not really working in history anymore. Nobody actually believes that, but they sort of live that way at times as if, as if it's just over. And we become, we start to, to think of ourselves, you know, we divorce church history, you know, from the Bible as if the two aren't intimately connected, as, as if the fruit of what happened in the book of Acts, for example, is not continuing down through this day. And so God is living and active. We don't want to be like, a, you know, Baptists or, or, or I should say more properly like uh, restorationists who think that the New Testament era ended and then the church just kind of disappeared and nothing good ever happened. And I realize I'm setting up a little bit of a straw man, but not much of one, because that is functionally <laughs> how these people teach. And it's how some Lutherans want to teach too. It was like, okay, so there was there was the New Testament era, and then the Reformation happened, and then Seminex, and we're and we're good. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the Reform—I mean, the Reformation is in the Book of Revelation, right? In That's chapter right. Four, That's in right. chapter fourteen, Uh-oh. and nothing else ever. You know, nothing, nothing else ever happened. From, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, no, yeah, I, I think you can you can definitely say that. You know, and, and really, one clear evidence of vindication is that no matter what government you're living in, no matter how totalitarian it is, it cannot prevail and will not prevail against the church. The church will continue, and the church will go on. You know, even, even if America falls, the church continues. The Soviet Union, the commies did what they could to crush Christianity, and guess what? Yeah. Guess where they are today? Please don't say here. That's not what I meant. But the, <laughs> the, the Soviets have, uh, you know, the USSR is no more and the church is still there. Yeah. So I think that's that's evidence of, of vindication, continual vindication, culminating in the great vindication when Jesus Christ returns again in glory, which is coming sooner than we know. Yeah. And that, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a better way of kind of understanding the book of Revelation than just thinking it's going to happen someday in the far distant future, right? But that these yeah. things these things have happened, and I don't think that this is like having it both ways. They will happen again, right? So there, uh, I don't know how many times it'll happen that you have sort of the tide come in and the tide go out, but I think that that's a better view of the the work of the church is that there is this it it grows strong and then it grows weak and it grows strong and it grows weak and it's not just a constant uphill or a constant downhill right but but nevertheless ever going forward i would say yeah yeah or or never ceasing to contend you know always always going out always always fighting is the church militant all right we're up on our next break we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken right after this All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. 
Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with David Apple talking about the book of Revelation. We've gotten through chapter 7. We've talked about saints and heaven and the church militant and vindication. Now we're going on to chapter 8 and to talk about the seventh seal. And we'll see if we get into trumpets. We might not. You might have to stay tuned for another episode for that. So, David, we're at the seventh seal. There's silence for a half an hour. What's going on? Yeah, so finally we get, again, I mentioned this before, you have this pattern repeated with both the seals and the trumpets that between the sixth and the seventh, there's going to be an interruption of the normal sequence. You know, then he opened another seal, he opened another seal, or the angel blew a trumpet. And uh, so now we return at the beginning of chapter eight after the interruption of the church militant and at rest. In chapter 8, you get the the seventh seal opened, and that's going to lead into the seven trumpets. So again, this is just something to notice about how the book of Revelation, and I think it's helpful to have in mind um, for just as you're thinking about the, the way that the, I don't know, maybe this is not the right word for it, Willie, but the way the story of the book is going on, uh-huh. the seals lead into the trumpets, which are going to lead into the bowls being poured out. And I think it's just helpful to notice how John, as he's writing the book and how the spirit, as he reveals it to him, as soon as the lamb opens the seven seals, there's going to be silence, which we can talk about. But then he sees the seven angels who have seven trumpets. And so he's kind of dropping this hint. These trumpets are going to come back in just a minute. But before we get to the trumpets, you see what happens during this time of silence. All right. So tell us what happens. Yeah. So the silence, I think if you like your, you know, your Jewish apocalyptic literature, I know that you'll, uh, that's a big thing for you, Willie. I think you read it to your children in the evenings, you know, fourth Ezra and things like that. That's right. (laughs) I I prefer to call it intertestamental or second temple. Yeah. But there yes. you go. You, you read the Second Temple literature with Gus, and that's good. This 
the silence um, that comes is sort of like the you might put it this way it's the the quiet bef- the calm before the storm so i think that if you if you look up other references to this period of silence that comes right before the end of the world or right before the the bringing in of the new creation which is that was the hope of israel but here in the book of revelation what follows the silence is not the immediate end of all things but you have this time where the um, what John sees is angels offering all kinds of incense on the golden altar of the throne of God. And so here's where, you know, all of us who graduated from the Fort Wayne Seminary take our cues for what is, <laughs> you know, what is the first thing you should do in your congregation? You should get incense going. Um, because what it says is that the incense is the prayers of the saints rising up before God. So during the seventh seal, you have this time where instead of hearing God's judgment come on the world, you have this time where this, the, the focus is from the other end of things, right? From earth going up to heaven, you have the prayers of the saints being offered. Well, let's talk a little bit then about the prayer of the saints. What, what do you think that means? Who, who is this referring to? I think it is referring to the the church on earth, the the people who are in tribulation. Um, We've already seen, like in chapter 7 and even before in chapters 4 and 5, you have the saints uh, who are coming out of the tribulation. And they are praying in that more general sense of worshiping God, praising him. And I guess with the martyrs, you do have what I would call a more narrow kind of form of prayer where there's an actual petition, right? Mm-hmm. A request for something that we would be vindicated. But here I think you're you're getting the the prayers that are offered up by people who are in sufferings and who are praying for deliverance from all the evils that they're enduring. What do you think the significance of incense is here then? Well, this, this goes back to the Old Testament use of incense, right? So mixed in with all of the sacrifices, and usually that would include both the, you know, the burning up of the flesh of the animals and also the, the offering of wheat or of wine on the altar. You have the priests offering incense too, which kind of on a practical level, right, is covers up the smell of the burning of the animals, but on the the more important point of the incense is that it is a it is a sweet smelling thing in God's nostrils, so to speak. Right, that God, when He hears our prayers, is not He, he doesn't ignore them; they're not unnoticed by Him, but they are sweet to Him. He wants to hear the prayers of the saints. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, the the sort of the normy obvious symbolism is the prayer rising up as incense, which is a biblical motif too, but there's so much more, as you've just pointed out, to to incense than simply smoke going up. That's the basic one, but so much more going on there. So he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God, so there's the, the rising language, from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. I think rumblings is probably literally just sounds there. There were sounds that that happened. Now, so you've got the censer, fire from the altar. So he's taking the incense, the prayers, 
And as a result of these things, calamity is happening upon the earth. <laughs> right. So this is this is what's great about the book of Revelation. And we got into it a little bit in the previous segment, that the prayers go up from the people, from the church to God. And what comes back down is not you know, a still calm voice like Elijah. <laughs> right. But even that, I mean, this is something that that always appeals to me. When the Lord answers Elijah, it's true that he answers in the still small voice. But what he tells him to do is not just relax, Elijah, it's all going to be all right. He tells him to go and anoint, you know, these kings and Elisha to kill everyone. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's that's just a helpful thing to point out. Well, um, and it's 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 hilarious because that's the one we always go to. God's speaking in the still small voice. Yeah. And then in Exodus 4, he's yelling at Moses saying, "Who made man's mouth?" You know. And so every every bit of little, of calm uh, tends to give way to um I don't want to say terrifying because that has a negative connotation, but it is. It's a very jolting message from the Lord. And like you said, that still small voice led to some less than pleasant consequences for certain people. Yeah, this is this is much more like Psalm 18, where David prays to the Lord, and then the earth reeled and rocked, right? Yeah. Because the Lord came and he made bare the channels of the sea. Um, so, so the answer to the prayers of the ch- of the church that they offer up to God is going to be revealed somehow in what comes next. And yep. what comes next is the the seven trumpets. But I think we sh- uh, we want to just stick on this idea of prayer and God's answer to our prayers um, going to be not always um, just you know sort of a quiet, calming thing. But there's there's sometimes trouble when the Lord moves. Well, yeah, and and I think too uh, it, it's clear that this is coming as a result of the prayers of the saints. It certainly seems to be part of it anyway. I mean, because this is, you know, the angel takes the censer uh, filled with fire from the altar and throws it on the earth. Well, well, what's there? What's there on the altar? The smoke of incense, the prayers of the saints on this golden altar. So that God is hearing, I mean, this is obvious from the text, that God is hearing the prayers of the saints. They do not go unheard. You know, it's interesting. Uh, It's almost like this is a fulfillment of an imprecatory psalm here, which we're taught is a bad thing for Christians to pray. Sure. We, we are to pray for repentance for our enemies and pray that they receive grace and mercy from the Lord. But here in Revelation, they pray for vindication. You know, they pray for judgment even, like you see in the Psalms. And this is kind of what's happening here. The prayers go up and now the, the trumpets are about to be blown. Yeah, the and uh, of course, right, we could jump ahead of that and say, well, but then also in the middle of the trumpets being blown, right, there is the witness that the two faithful Correct. witnesses Correct. come. And so that, you know, if you take it, if you oversimplify it, you miss, of course, God answers the prayers of his people by, you know, continuing to send his spirit. But also, again, like we were, like we were mentioning before, the, the hope of for Christians is not just that we finally one day would be delivered, but we want to be delivered even now, right, from calamities. We want to be delivered from those who oppose the work of the gospel. I mean, it really is uh, part of our prayer that people who oppose the work of the gospel would somehow be put out of the way. And yeah. of course, it's up to God how that happens. Yeah, and that but, can come about by repentance, or it can come about by you know uh, judgment, the swift hand that comes down. Just check out the story of Herod. 
you know, and look at early early church history. I believe everything that was written down happened in every book. No, but uh, <laughs> no, I, but but you know, I mean, I joke only a little bit. Um, I think we should look at these historical accounts and, and read them with some sobriety. Yeah, uh, we've become a little bit milk toast uh, with regard to prayer because prayer has become so saccharine and so eh, meh. Can I, you know, to sound like a... <laughs> you sound like Z, yeah. Exactly. That you need to, we need to pray as if uh, there's power there. And we need to pray as if the triune God is hearing it and will answer. And so it, it's okay to pray that the Lord have victory and that the church be vindicated and let God decide what that vindication is. Because I guarantee you there will be cases where it will not be the weak and down comforter style kind of answer that people are wanting <laughs> because I mean, unless you're a universalist, right. Or, or even an, an annihilationist or even right? an annihilationist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, to deny any kind of temporal judgment coming is, is one step away from denying an eternal judgment. Well, and look, I mean, if you look back through the old Testament, that's, it's always helpful to see this, that when God, you know, when when the people of Israel are in Egypt and they're suffering under Pharaoh and God hears their prayers and God knows, it says in the book of Exodus, then what comes next is, you know, of course, the call of Moses, but all of the plagues on Egypt and the destruction of, you know, that evil, that evil country. And so the and and that itself is a cause for rejoicing in Israel of old, right? So when they see Pharaoh drowned in the sea, they don't say, oh, that was too harsh, God. They actually sing to the Lord. Yeah. And and in the book of Revelation, we're going to come to this eventually, when Babylon is no more, when the, the sound goes up that Babylon is fallen, it actually causes everyone to rejoice. Right. Babylon has fallen, made a great hymn too, part of the word fitly collection. Yes, absolutely. So this... This idea that God's deliverance of us is only spiritual or is only going to be experienced in, I don't know, the comfort of a of the conscience. And I'm not saying that to, to downgrade those things. I mean, a, a cleansed conscience is a beautiful thing. But there are also temporal and physical ways in which God answers our prayers and not just the ones of, you know, yeah. I'm, I have cancer, please God. Yeah, you, know. I, you know, I can remember being like in, in seminary and with classmates and things, you know, people who were going out and, you know, they would say things like, well, you know, God can't judge people temporally because, or there can't be temporal consequences because Jesus has atoned for sin already. Well, how do you explain AIDS and everything else, you know, but, yeah. and, and all these other things that happen as a result of the temporal consequences of sin? You know, to say nothing of, you know, people losing their offices and stations or families being broken up. These are temporal consequences of sin. But since we're, you know, it, it wouldn't behoove us right now to get into the trumpets because we couldn't really get the discussion going. Let's talk a little bit about this, the biblical case here. So what you're going to have to do is people are going to say, well, before the cross, yeah, there were these judgments coming down. But after the cross, it's not like that because of the new covenant or something. Well, the Bible doesn't present it that way. The book of Revelation doesn't, but let's look at the book of Acts. Yeah. I think the case of Ananias and Sapphira should be enough to put this idea to rest that there are not uh, divine judgments with physical manifestations in the New Testament. 
because Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead as a result of their sin. And it's a divine judgment. There's no getting away around that. Lying to the Holy Ghost, boom, you're gone. Yeah, King Herod, which which Herod is it who, you know, he's giving this this speech. This is in the book of Acts, and uh, he's giving a speech, and everybody says it's the voice of a god, and then he doesn't acknowledge that, no, I'm just a man. And so God, does does his belly burst open and worms Mm -hmm. come out? Yeah. So you're going to go, that's Acts 12. That's Acts 12, 1 to 4. And so Herod's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him in a body. Uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, the people kept shouting uh, the voice of a God and not a mortal. And immediately, because he had not given glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he's eaten by worms and dies. But my favorite part is verse 24, actually. But the word of God continued to advance and gain. And gain sure. followers. Yeah, so yeah, uh, there, there's another case yeah, of Herod you know, going down there. And so you clearly see this happening. So you cannot deny that. And again, though, this is another symptom of, well, stuff happened in the Bible, but we're, but that history, yeah. we're not part of that history. We're in a different era now. And really, it's a question of, uh, David, and you need this when you're reading Revelation too, because we talked early in the show about being afraid of the Antichrist, but not looking forward to the coming of Christ. Do we believe in a living God or not? And if you believe in a living God, he is active, and he is merciful, and he loves his church, he loves his people, and he will continue to show grace and mercy, but he is worthy to be praised, and he ought to be feared as well. Not a servile fear, of course, but we need to recognize that he is Almighty God, and he is a thrice holy God. And so he does execute his judgment in the earth. And thanks be to God, as we are under the blood of Christ, like it to the saints mentioned here in Revelation, uh, we will receive his mercy. But it, but we shouldn't treat that as an excuse uh, for lasciviousness or anything like that. And we shouldn't treat his mercy as if that means the scripture somehow teaches that he is far off from us or is simply winking at the actions of men. No, no the testimony of Revelation is he sees the struggles of the church, he sees the saints, he hears their prayers, and his judgment comes down uh, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the saints. I think I think sometimes there's a I know this just from my own thinking about the world and and from talking with people there's it's like we're hesitant to to see to to recognize evil and to mm-hmm. to really want it to stop like I mean of course we want evil to stop but what that actually entails is sometimes people who are carrying out evil plans and who have wicked plans like they their evil can't stop as long as they're still in power or in positions of, yeah. of authority. And you're not um, going to be able to appeal to their conscience or their reason. Yeah. yeah. So so looking for, and, and this is where I think Christians, because we, we want all men to be saved, just like the Lord does, it can sometimes feel like, well, I'm not, that isn't that mean to want someone to be, you know, put down from their position or to want, are we wanting something bad to happen to someone? No, we're not wanting something bad to happen to people, but we are wanting, like we pray in the Lord's Prayer, we want to be delivered from evil and we want the people who are actually committing heinous acts and, and evil things that, that they need to be stopped from that for their own sake, but also for the sake of everyone else. Right. For, for the sake, yeah, that, that's love of neighbor to want this, uh, you know, uh, evil to be taken away from them. 
and and that's what happens. Ultimately, it will happen, and the Lord is still is still moving and working. Um, we can't peer into divine providence, and we don't know why some evil is permitted and some not. Uh, but this is it is in the hands of the Lord because again, we serve a living God and an active God, and I will never uh, question His judgment, and His ways are inscrutable. But I am to trust in Him and to trust the testimony of Scripture concerning Him and His nature. And and you delight in His judgments, and that's Absolutely. a good and that's a good thing. Right. Yeah. So when when Babylon is fallen, like it's okay to rejoice. You should. <laughs> you should praise <laughs> the Lord yeah. when you hear that song come on at the right. end of the episode. Amen. Yeah. Well, we are at time. Any other parting thoughts before we adjourn? No, but we we're just getting into it too. And uh, these these themes, like we mentioned, are gonna intensify in the book. And so I, I, this has just been great. We're only in chapter, what, chapter eight. eight so we're yeah. only a third of the way through. All right. Thanks so much, David. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with David Apple. God love you and God bless. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Revelation 8, 4 and 5.